1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I desire then at every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. We're going to go before the Lord again. So men, lift up your hands, holy hands in particular. And so this is for Christian men. Let's raise our hands to the Lord and ask him to help us yet again. God, we come to you again. This is a house of prayer. And so we're going to continue to come to you. Help us in all that we do the rest of this day. Lord, I pray for our families. Lord, I pray for this church. I pray for this city. And I ask that you would move powerfully in our lives as individuals, in our families, in this church, and in the city. God, do a powerful work. Continue to do it. God, we need your help. We are dependent upon you. Lead us this time. We trust you will. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought today would be a good day to address the book of James quickly. Today we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. The sermon title this morning is Sons of the Free Woman. Sons of the Free Woman. But I thought at first we would start in James chapter 2. Many of you were reading through the Bible Reading Challenge. We just finished Same Page Summer. We're going to be going into a new school year, which is a new Bible Reading Challenge every single year. And so there's going to be a new Bible Reading Challenge starting here soon. Does anybody have a start date yet for that? September the what? September the 6th. And so September the 6th, there'll be a men's group and a women's group that'll be going out. And so be looking for the links for that and the invitations for that. But as you're reading through your Bible reading plan, and this summer we did this, we went through the book of James, and a couple people asked, you know, hey, James chapter 2, when you look at that and you look at Galatians, there really seems to be this, I mean, just at, at first glance, it seems to be a contradiction. And this has been a longstanding debate down through the history of the church. What do you do with the book of James? Martin Luther notoriously struggled with the book of James, uh, didn't like it at all, and didn't think it would be, it should be in the New Testament canon. Uh, others have actually seen, I think, quite clearly what the book of James is saying, and that there is no contradiction whatsoever. And I think we need to be reminded regularly that the Bible complements each other. The Bible is always complementary, and it always interprets itself. It doesn't contradict itself, and there's such a massive difference with that. And so even though there are claims of contradictions between Galatians and the book of James, or many other Bible, books of the Bible and the book of James, I think we can clear that up really quickly. And so I wanted to do that before we get going, and it's going to set us up well for where we're going in, in chapter 4 today of Galatians. And so I just want to read a few verses from James chapter 2, clear that up, and then go to Galatians, and really hopefully this will unlock for you a few things that, uh, that maybe will, will help you understand this. This is chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now that's going to be important. Can that faith save him? There's a definition of the kind of faith that James is talking about in James chapter 2. Can that faith, and that faith that he's describing is a faith without works. And then we're going to get another definition of that faith here in a second. Keep going in verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacked in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So we get a connection between that faith and the word dead faith. Dead faith cannot save. So there's going to be some kind of connection here between that faith and dead faith and a faith that cannot save. Now, verse 18 to 26, you guys can read this on your own in your own time. If you've already read it, you know what we're talking about here. But when we read verses or read uh, through the rest of the chapter, we see that that faith, or dead faith, cannot save. In fact, we get this verse in verse 24 that's been a, lot of, uh, been a lot of confusion over the years. It says this, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And we start to scratch our head a little bit. Wait a minute. That seems to be at odds with everything we've been talking about in the book of Galatians. It seems to be at odds with the gospel of Jesus. And so as you've read this, let's just be honest, who's read that before and thought, ugh. 
I don't know what to do with that. Let's see a show of hands. Let's all be honest here. Yes, okay. I don't know what to do with that. Well, we never come to a Bible verse and say, I don't know what to do with that and put it to the side. We keep wrestling. We keep praying. And then as the Holy Spirit leads us, voila, it unlocks for us. Well, what we see is something that's so true is that dead faith alone can't save. Because what kind of faith is James addressing? He is addressing a certain kind of faith that has no works with it. Dead faith. That faith. And dead faith alone cannot save. And we know this because we know so many people in our life, this, this really meets our practical experience every single day as well, because we know so many people in this world that claim to be a Christian and yet have no evidence of that in their life. There's no fruit. You bump into the glass, uh, you bump into the glass and what comes out of it, is it good or is it bad? And there's a whole lot of bad. There's not good fruit. And so we see that dead faith clearly does not save. And this is contrasted with a definition of faith that's right in verse 26. It says, For the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So we have to ask a question. When you have faith and works, what is that? And I think we get the contrast with dead faith, we get living faith. Living faith is what real faith is. Living faith works. Living faith has the accompanying works that come and confirm the faith that's there. And James, I think, really clearly is describing what real faith is. Real faith is a faith that works. That kind of faith, faith that works, that kind of faith does save. That kind of faith alone saves. Dead faith is natural. Very natural. Everybody can have dead faith. Everybody can have mental assent. Everybody can say, yes, I believe that. And yet it have no bearing or impact on their life at all. Everyone has the natural ability for vain belief. But living faith, living faith, real faith, the kind of faith that Galatians speaks of and the kind of faith that James is talking about here is supernatural faith. It's not vain faith. It's God-given faith. And that's what we're going to see today in the book of Galatians. So as you read that this next year, as you bump into the book of James and you're reading through it, think about that. Can that faith save? Can dead faith save? Can vain belief save? Absolutely not. Why? Because there's nothing supernatural about it. And it doesn't lead to a life of good works. But living faith, real faith, supernatural faith leads to a life of good works. It's got good works that accompany it. It's natural versus supernatural faith. Okay, Galatians chapter 4. Flip back if you had already flipped to James. And today we're going to see something supernatural about the faith delivered to the saints. It's an amazing thing. Uh, Paul is going to continue his argument today. He's kind of like a pit bull. A pit bull doesn't get up, give up. You see a pit bull jumping for, you know, the little rope that you wrestle with, or that you fight with with a dog, and you put that in a tree or something and, and hang it and dangle it, and they're going to run after that thing. They're going to try to climb that tree. They're going to do whatever they can to get that rope or to get that toy. There's a, there's a whole phrase about it. It's like you're like a pit bull. Uh, because a pit bull does not give up. And Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to continue on with this same argument that we've had for four chapters now. Argument by argument, step by step, he's building the case that we are saved by grace, through faith, and not through works of the law. Next week, we're going to look at Paul's final words about the controversy before he transitions into practical Christian living. Adam will cover that because I'm going to be up shooting bears in Minnesota this week and not studying for a sermon. Pray for me. Pray for the bears. So Adam's going to be preaching for me Sunday. I will be here, but Adam will be preaching. And so that chapter, the end of uh, chapter 4 and then into chapter 5, halfway through chapter 5, ends Paul's argument. And then he transitions into practical Christian living, which he so often does in his letters. 
But here again, we look at the same argument with a different angle. We kind of look at it in a different way and check out a different angle. It's important to remember that this is not simply Paul bringing wave after wave of argumentation. Although Paul, the Apostle Paul, was certainly intellectually able to do that. He was able to look at the Old Testament, argue from the Old Testament. We're going to see here in a second that he does that. But we have to keep in mind that this is the Holy Spirit of God making the gospel of Jesus so clear for the churches of Galatia, and it's making it so clear in 50 different ways, over and over again, wave after wave of grace, so that the churches of Galatia would understand this is false teaching, and this is the real, pure gospel. And Paul is so adamant that these false teachers, he's going to end, end with this today, that these false teachers need to be cast out, and the next chapter, Adam gets to preach the really invigorating and exciting verse Verse 12, I wish that those who would unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So Paul's very serious about this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to look again at the Old Testament, and Paul's going to rumble with those who want to say that the Old Testament is saying something else. And Paul's scholarly ability through the leading of the Holy Spirit is going to come out. Look at verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? Do you not listen to the law? So he looks at the people who are saying, I want to be under the law. The word is desire. I desire to be under the law. And he asks them, do you not listen to the law? Are, are you actually listening to what the law says, you who want to be under it? If you want to be under it, well, then let's go there. Let, let's do this. Let's rumble a little bit. Let's go into the Old Testament. And let's actually look at what the law of God says. Because even in the Old Testament, the Old, the Old Testament doesn't say what these false teachers are saying. And so he's going to appeal to them. You want to be under the law. Are you actually listening to God's word? These false teachers were like the ones in Ephesus. Very similar to the ones in Ephesus where, where Paul charges certain persons. They were swerving from these. They have wandered away into vain discussion. They were desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they were making confident assertions. And these false teachers in Ephesus are doing the exact same as the false teachers in the Galatian territories. They were speaking confidently about things they didn't know. They were making confident assertions. And Paul's like, all right, well, let's go there. Let's just go into the Old Testament then. And I'm going to show you that it's not saying what they are saying it's saying. Paul's theological giftedness is about to be unleashed. Look at verse 22. For it's written that Abraham had two sons... One by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. So let's break it down. Abraham had two sons. One by a slave woman. Her name was? Hagar. Her son's name was? Ishmael. One by a free woman. Who was the free woman? What was her son's name? Isaac. Isaac. Ishmael by the flesh, by natural means. So Sarah, Sarah was so desperate, so desperate for the promises to come true that she's thinking, how can we naturally make this happen? I'm older. I'm way past childbearing age. There's no way possible. I'm barren. We can't do this. It's not going to happen. Abraham's like, all right. Well, what are we going to do about this? And Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham, and she conceives. Natural conception. So it was very natural. Isaac, 
came by way of promise. It was supernatural. And we get a compare and contrast, natural and supernatural. Both were sons of Abraham, but only one was supernaturally conceived. And it's an allegory. We're told very plainly, this is allegorical. There's something here to this that's going to help us understand the argumentation that Paul is making. It's allegorical. They represent two covenants. Now, this is primarily not talking about the covenant God made with Abraham and the covenant of grace. This is talking about or the, the covenant that we have in Christ and the new covenant. This is talking about law and gospel. It's going to help the Galatians to understand what Paul's talking about. And it's also going to help us understand what Paul is talking about. We want to understand Paul's argumentation about the gospel of Jesus. Is the gospel of Jesus natural or supernatural? Who are the true children of Abraham? Now we're told this allegory is about Sinai and slavery. Look at verse 24, the second half, verse B of 24. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Let's break it down again. Hagar and her children are in slavery in present Jerusalem. These are the ones who have looked to Christ but are beholden to Moses. They have looked to Christ but fallen in love with Moses. Jesus is cute, Moses is the man. They're natural people. Their hope is built on nothing less than Moses' commandments and my own righteousness. Yes, they know the name of Jesus. Yes, they may have even bowed the knee. Because we find out later that Paul continually calls them brothers. His assumption is that they are true believers. But these false teachers are coming in and teaching this false doctrine. And it's leading them away from the simple hope in Jesus' blood and righteousness toward Moses' commandments and their own righteousness. And Paul's doing this compare and contrast here. The natural ones are natural people simply born in the bloodline of Abraham. Those who are ethnic Jews. Those who have the proper birthright according to the law of Moses and through the lineage of Abraham. They are natural people simply born of the bloodline of Abraham. Paul, in another place in Romans chapter 9, talks about how not all Israel is the true Israel. We've talked about that on multiple occasions. They are the present Jerusalem. Those who are natural. The Jews without Christ are slaves to the law and are children of Hagar. Now how offensive this would have been to those who were not just simply Gentiles, but they were Jews living in Gentile territory. It would have been quite offensive. And Paul, a Jew of all Jews, had no problem saying this. He had no problem talking this way. Jesus talked this way. Just because you're born in the bloodline of Abraham and you say that you have Abraham as your father, it doesn't mean anything. You're actually children of the devil, John chapter 8, where he looks to those who have the proper birthright and he calls them children of the devil. They're not children of God at all. You can't get in to the kingdom of God by natural means. So he says the Jew Jerusalem below is in slavery. Okay, that, That's from Hagar to the Jerusalem below in slavery to the law. Now verse 26, there's another transition and it says this. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. And we all belong to Jerusalem above. We all belong to Jerusalem above. Ben knows what I'm talking about. 
Anybody heard the Brian Sauvé sea shanty? Okay, it's good. I was thinking it would have been really good if we got to that line and we'd all been practicing this, and then if we kept this a secret to everybody, but there was like a group of like 20 guys that just stood up and started singing the sea shanty. But it would have been looking around like, whoa. The Jerusalem above is free, and she's our mother. That's where the line comes from. We all belong to Jerusalem above, and we sail for Eden shore. Great, you guys, seriously, look that up. The people of God are not found in one central place like the Jerusalem below. There is no center for the Christian world. Christians are a heavenly people. The church is free. The Jerusalem above is a free people. Every Christian is connected to that Jerusalem above. Calvin wrote this. Why then is it said to be from heaven, the Jerusalem above? Why is it said to be from heaven? Because it originates in heavenly grace. For the sons of God are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The heavenly Jerusalem, which derives its origin from heaven and dwells above by faith, is the mother of believers. That is the Jerusalem that you want to be a part of. The city of God. The people of God. Those who are supernatural, not born into this thing by blood or the will of the flesh... Not those who have central or simply a vain natural belief, but you want to be in that heavenly city, the Jerusalem that's above. Now, Paul brings a proof text. He, he's going to make this argument clear. And by the way, if you're studying through the book of Galatians and as you're reading commentaries, this is one of the most, most difficult passages in all of Galatians. In fact, every single commentator I read talked about the difficulty of understanding this passage. And there are certainly elements of this that are of greater and lesser difficulty, but there's some really clear things that are here for us that we want to see, and that's what I'm focusing primarily on today. Look at verse 27. He gives a proof text about the difference between the Jerusalem above and the Jerusalem below. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 54, and here's what he says. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren ones, who does not bear... Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those who have those of the one who has a husband. He's a proof text, okay? So he quotes from Isaiah chapter 54. It's a chapter on the kingdom of God and the calling of the Gentiles. And what he wants to do is highlight the grace of God. He wants to differentiate between those who are brought into the kingdom of God that are in the Jerusalem above and differentiate those who are not in the kingdom of God or are not and that are a part of the Jerusalem below. He wants to distinguish supernatural from the natural. And the question arises as you read this verse, how could the barren and desolate one bear more children than the one who has a husband? How does multiplication come from barrenness? That's an impossibility. And how can the one who's barren, how can the one who's not in labor produce more children than those who have a husband. And what you're supposed to do is walk away and think, yeah, that's right. How does, a, how, does, how does life come from barrenness? How does more children come from barrenness than the one who's not barren who has a husband? How, how is this? This is an impossibility. And yet this is how God works. This is how God works. God works through impossibilities to highlight and distinguish his grace as contrasted to human ability. This is how God works. He makes a 90-year-old woman have a child. Life from barrenness. 
He makes spiritually dead people come alive. Life from deadness. He makes spiritual children when there is no natural way. God is always in the business of working powerfully and supernaturally when you look at it with your eyes and say, there's no way God can do this. There's no way anything can be done. And yet God does something miraculous. God is in the business of making a way when there is no way. And they should know this. Paul's laying it out there and saying, you desire to be under the law, listen to the law. God has always been in the natural, in, in, in the business of doing supernatural things. We've never been a natural people. We've always been a supernatural people. Don't cast aside the work of God in favor of your own work. Behold the work of God. So in this contrast, we, we start to get personal. Look at verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. Brothers. He calls them brothers. Now keep in mind, this church, he's already held this, this church accountable for listening to false teachers. We talked about that in chapter 1. It wasn't the elders who were held accountable, it was the church. Be careful what you listen to. We're going to get to more of that here in just a minute. And yet he still calls them brothers. He's still, still appealing to the fact that they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And he wants to tell them, Galatians, you are like Isaac. You are children of the promise. You're not children of the slave woman. You're wanting slavery again. You're wanting what people get naturally. They naturally get slavery. I brought you out of that. I set you free. I took your chains and shattered them and set you on the narrow path. And you're wanting to walk in that Broadway again. You're wanting to come in and bring under the bondage of the law again. Galatians, you're children of the promise. You are the Jerusalem above. You are not the enslaved Jerusalem below. You are not sons of Hagar. He's speaking to their identity. You are children of the promise. You are what you are. You're free because God has brought life to your barren and desolate soul. Now spiritually, this is just a reality. Before somebody's a Christian, there is barrenness there. There is deadness there. There's nothing that you can do to get yourself out of that. You can't bring life to yourself. You're powerless. And what God has done for you has brought life where there was no life. He has dropped it into you. He has done something for you. You couldn't hold on to it. It's not the life preserver. I remember one of the first sermons that Russ Kruder preached at our church about five years ago. He talked about that. He said, you weren't gasping for breath and finally got a life preserver sent to you. You were dead, dead at the bottom of the ocean. You're you're already dead and at the bottom of the ocean. And God himself reached down and pulled you out and gave you breath in your lungs. Life from barrenness. And this message is always, always pushed back against. Those who want you to have skin in the game, and those who want skin in the game, those who are uncomfortable with a God who saves totally by his own sovereign grace, who feel uncomfortable with that, oppose that message like crazy. And they think they're doing so at the defense of God's character. Well, I want to defend God's character, and what differentiates me from somebody who's not a Christian is not what God has done in my life and not done in their life. And he's not obligated, by the way, to do anything in my life or in anybody's life. What differentiates, then, me and the non-believer is me, what I've, what I've done with the knowledge that I have. And those who want to defend God's character don't like to hear that you're saved by grace and by grace alone. And it's not by the strength of your hands or the strength of your will or the strength of your flesh at all. It it isn't. 
that, that God does 99% for everybody else and then leaves that 1% to you and then what differentiates you between yourself and that non-believing neighbor of yours is you, that 1%. There's always opposition when the grace of God comes. It's a message that sounds too good to be true that actually is. And that's why people have said before that grace offends before it delights. When you bump in face-to-face with the grace of God, at first, it stings. It really does. It stings. It doesn't feel right. Wait a minute. I, I'm supposed to be rewarded for something. This is, it's got to be something that I earn. That's the message of every single religion in the world. Is that I do my part, therefore I get rewarded for the part that I do. And here we're told, no, you were barren and desolate. And yet God brought life. And so opposition always comes, comes when the grace of God is preached. And this is what's happening here. The grace of God on display, and these false teachers are coming in and saying, guys, that is too good to be true. That's not true. You are dead and barren. You, you have the power to do this. Yes, pray the prayer to Jesus. Ask him to help you. But then you do what you're supposed to do. Get in line, do the work, and then maybe, 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 one day that assurance of salvation will come. Opposition always comes. Look at verse 29. It's there. It's on display just like it is in our life today. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. This is a common, common theme. Opposition is sure to come. As surely as Ishmael persecuted Isaac, so it is today. The Jerusalem below persecutes the Jerusalem above. And that's what the Galatian churches were experiencing, whether they realized it or not. They were being persecuted by way of false teaching. Now, this is fascinating to me. Because typically, when we think about persecution, we think about what's happening in Afghanistan. But one of the things that Paul is doing right now is showing us that, that there's a lot of layers to persecution. And what false teachers are actually doing to the church is persecuting the church. When you oppose the grace of God... You're actually persecuting Christian brothers and sisters. You're harming them. And Paul's saying, you're being harmed by them. Remember last week or two weeks ago how much I cared for you. I treated you as you treated me. You would have ripped your very eyes out. And that's what I'm doing for you. I'm bearing out my soul here for you. I love you. I'm doing this for your good. Like you were doing that for my good. Like you were taking care of me. Now I'm taking care of you. But these false teachers are actually persecuting you and trying to get you to think much of them. Careful what you listen to. Really. Listening, listen with discerning ears. And, and the way your discernment grows is through the scriptures. Like, if you're not in this and you claim that you have the gift of discernment, you don't. We have to know God's word. And when false teaching comes, we have to be careful what our ears listen to because that false gospel, that false teaching, that opposition to the grace of God, the pure gospel, Jesus saves and Jesus saves alone. He doesn't need your help. He's got you. And anybody who comes by the grace of God and bows their knees and repents, it's not about them cleaning themselves up. They've got the rest of their life ahead of them. Come just as you are. Jesus saves, and Jesus saves alone. He doesn't need your help. 
But bad teachers were harming their souls. The, the, the thing is a reality today. Beware. We have access to literally thousands of false teachers who are making a great living, by the way, persecuting the church. As the church keeps, keeps giving them money to persecute them. Like, here, keep persecuting me. Here. Here. Buy that jet. Here. It's a really amazing thing, to be honest, that false teachers can actually get people to give them enough money to buy a jet. It's crazy. Man, what in the world? Opposition, though, is soon is sure to come. So, so what to do about it? What, what do you do? You got the false teachers in their midst. They're hearing this. You know, as this letter is being read, probably some of them, you know, are sitting there like, he's talking about me, you know, and they all know who, who Paul's talking about. So Paul says, give him the boot. Look at verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Give them the boot. Cast them out. Do not tolerate. Do not tolerate them trying to make you slaves to justification by way of Sinai. Do not let them do that. Don't let them make you think you're just a natural person, that there's nothing supernatural about this. We are radically supernatural. Radically Every Christian is. We are supernaturalist more than anybody knows it. Because we believe, we believe God has broken through space and time into our very lives, into our very existence, and gave us a new heart. Heart surgery, that, that's supernatural. God breaking the natural order of things and saving somebody is radically supernatural. Don't let them make that message natural. You can do this. Go, pray to Jesus, and then get on your way. Just do this, 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 or this. Go get circumcised. Go follow the law. Don't let them tell you you need Jesus with a side of a whole lot of law to be justified. Don't let them do it. Don't let them rob you of assurance right now, because that message will rob you of assurance. Christ plus law never brings somebody assurance, ever, 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 ever. There is no assurance with that, that false gospel. It's just not there. A Christless doctrine. It's Christless and it is deceptive. Don't bring the doctrines of Jerusalem below to the Jerusalem above. To this day, there are countless, and it's, it's, it can be very subtle. Messianic Jews can do a great job helping us understand a lot from the Old Testament. There's some insight that can be very helpful. But something that's also popular to this day, Christless Jewish teaching has become popular among many Christians. As if just being a natural Jew, reading the Old Testament somehow is going to give you insight into the scriptures. But Jews who reject Christ, they do not understand the Old Testament properly. They don't. They need supernatural insight from those who have the Spirit of God. It's not just them who don't understand the Old Testament properly. It's, the, it's also those who see Jesus as the gateway into religion and then trusting in the law instead of Christ from them, then on. Uh, and Paul's like, cast out, cast out the slave woman and her son. Cast them out. You're not welcome here. You, if you're coming to the table and trying to receive communion and you're trusting in your works of the law and saying that Jesus isn't enough, this, this, you don't have share here. 
false teachers must get out. Paul does not deal with false teachers by speaking nicely to them or keeping the kid gloves on. He takes those off and he, addre- he addresses the false teaching directly. Get them out. And then he concludes this little portion with verse 31. Argument, argument closes, new argument, new argument closes over and over and over through the book. Same point over and over and over again. Jesus is enough. Guys, really, Jesus is enough to save. He's enough for your assurance right now. Right now, if you feel like, gosh, I've been messing up, look to Jesus. He's enough. He is enough. Verse 31, so, which is always a, a connection between the thought beforehand, so, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So, brothers, He's still speaking to the Galatian Christians as brothers. We've got to always keep that in mind. That's crucial for the next chapter, too, when, when Adam is going to be talking about those who are severed from Christ, those who have fallen away from grace. What in the world does that mean? Because he keeps calling them brothers. He's not talking about severed from salvation. He's not talking about severed from grace. He is talking about experientially. If you trust in Christ... And then go on to trust in the law. You're never going to experience the sweetness of the presence of Christ. In the way you would if you trust in Christ alone. And there are many people here. Not severed from Christ in a salvific manner. But are severed from that communion that you have with him. That fellowship with the triune God. When you know the preciousness that Jesus is enough. There's a communion with God that's there. That's not there otherwise. And you may be saved. But you experience none of the smile of God that's there for you. Because you only feel the frown. You're still living as these false teachers would have you live. So brothers, keep that in mind. It's important important to hear the word brothers. Uh, He makes a statement of identity. To close this argument out, he makes a statement of of identity. We are not, it's definitive, we are not children of of Hagar. So brothers, we are not children of the slave. We're not. That's not who we are. You're not Simply the natural bloodline of Abraham. You're not right by God by following the law. That's not who you are. We are, therefore, children of the free woman. But of the free woman, that's who we are. We are supernatural. That free woman conceived in a supernatural manner. You were born again in a supernatural manner. This is the connection between James. What's the difference between dead faith and living faith? These folks can have dead faith, vain belief. And yet, there's a contrast to those who have been brought to life. They're supernaturally brought into this thing called Christianity. You are like Isaac. There was no natural way for him to be born. There was no natural way for you to be born again. There's no natural way to be a part of the Jerusalem above. God has to bring you there. He has to put you there. He has to plant you there. He has to pluck you out of the dead place that you were, pick you up and put you into the Jerusalem above. God brought you life. You know, the book of James, excuse me, the book of John does this so well, John chapter 3, contrasting being born of spirit, born of water and blood. And spiritual birth and physical birth have these connections. there's, There's connections here about the reality of what is the new birth? What does it mean to be brought to life? Life from barrenness. And we think about that as, as an, you know, as allegorically or, or you know, metaphorically. If you, if you put that together and think, okay, then what's spiritual life? What is being born again or conceived even though 
through barrenness. What does that look like with, with spiritual new birth? You think about the natural birth. And, and really, a simple answer is, what, what did you have to do with your natural birth? I mean, everybody in here has been born. You're alive. You have a dad and a mom. You may, unfortunately, not know one of your parents, but the fact that you're here is evidence that at some time they got along okay. <laughs> right? But you didn't have anything to do with that. You had nothing to do with that at all. Your parents had something to do with it, but you didn't have anything to do with it. Nobody decided what time in history you're going to be born. Nobody decided the place that you would be born. Like, I was born Carbondale Memorial Hospital right down the road, 1983, October 24th, about to be 38. Crazy. Nobody decided that. I didn't say, God, here's the deal. Two Christian parents. I want my dad, my mom, Sam Marshall Sparks, and I want to be born in Southern Illinois in 1983. That's, nobody made wagers with God like that. There's so many things in life that we just don't have power over. We didn't decide anything about when we would be born. Now, when you were born, they clear your throat out. That, that baby, you slap that baby butt, do whatever you got to do, and you hear that cry, and that cry is evidence. It's not the determining factor of the fact that you're alive. In other words, those cries didn't determine the conception. It's signs of the fact that you were conceived. That's what the cries were. Okay, that baby's alive. And there's always a, a thank you. Thank you that we see that. Now, new birth. What did you have to do with it? These connections are made in the scriptures for a reason. It wasn't like there was a little bit of spiritual life there. What did you have to do with it? Nothing. So who's the parents in this situation? The parents did something. There's a baby conceived and then a baby born and life to come. Well, God did something beforehand that brought you to life. God worked in your life. God made you a person who was spiritually dead to a person who's spiritually alive. It was a miracle. Life from barrenness. And like Isaac, your salvation was a miracle from God. As surely as Isaac was born by way of promise and by way of miracle, you have been born by way of promise and by way of miracle. Your repentance and faith, your repentance and faith are the cries of life that show God has been at work in you. Your repentance and faith, like that cry from the butt slap and clearing of the throat, that, that gasp for breath, for breath, your repentance and faith are signs of prior work. They aren't the determining factor of the work of God. They're evidence that God has been doing something in you. God has, shh, defibrillators, boom, woken you up, given you a new heart. Your life in Christ is absolutely miraculous. And the churches of Galatia were being duped by a group of people that were saying, nothing supernatural to it. Just natural. Be like us. Follow us, do what we say to do, leave the teachings of Jesus, leave the teachings of Paul. We really knew what, we know what they meant. Follow us. And Paul's saying, don't walk the way of Hagar. You're not a natural person. 
That, that is a way of death and bondage, and you're not there. You have been set free from that false teaching. Don't put up with it anymore. Stand in awe. As surely as a baby has nothing to do with being born, you have not been, had nothing to do with being born again. You are a supernatural people. Stand in awe. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all that you are doing and all that you have done. It's a precious message, message to hear. We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. God, I thank you for the freedom that there is in Christ Jesus. Help us to enjoy that. Help us to stand in awe. Help us not push against your grace. It really is that good. It really is true. There's so many things in life that we accept that we can't have power over. We can't change. And yet with the most important thing, for some reason it's hard. It's hard to push through and and think, just God, thank you for all of it. Thank you you that I owe you everything. All my gratitude, all my praise, all my adoration, it goes to you. And so God, help us to enjoy your presence. Help us to stand in awe at your presence and your power. And Holy Spirit, lead us. I trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.